Good morning. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be here again with you, Adelston, this morning. And thank you, John, for leading us in the couple of worship songs. And thank you all for the invitation and for the wonderful breakfast. When I set off from Ashdead this morning, I had to scrape the car. And uh, it was a bit of a challenge to get going this morning, but I knew that there would be a great breakfast awaiting me here in this place, and you didn't disappoint. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you again. I wonder whether you were here last Sunday. Put your hands up quickly if you you can remember seven days ago, whether you were here at ABC last Sunday. Um, Keep your hands up if you can remember what the talk was about. Now there's a challenge. Well, there's uh, probably about three hands that remain up. I don't know whether you're being honest or not. But uh, can anybody remember what the talk was? I listened to it online on Thursday last week. I listened to Richard Fox's talk that he brought to your church last Sunday. Can you remember the theme of it? Communion. Thank you, Gemma. (laughs) You were upstairs, but you still remembered. Ah, well, it's good to be able to remember the importance of communion. Uh, Richard was talking about that in his sermon last Sunday. And it just so happens that the Bible passage today precedes the Bible passage that Richard spoke about last week. Now, how about that for a coincidence? Or maybe it was intended. Maybe it was a God incidence. Maybe God has deliberately brought this about. So please turn with me. If you have a Bible with you, please do turn to Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, then you might have it on your smartphone device, or maybe even it might appear on the screen. Um, so, Ma- so Matthew chapter 25, Richard was referring to the Last Supper from Matthew 26 last week, and today we go one chapter earlier, we go back one chapter to Matthew chapter 25, and it's my prayer that God reveals his presence to us through this Passage. We've just been singing about the request for God to show his presence here amongst us and to reveal his power and to move among us. So we're going to read about the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, reading through to Matthew chapter 26, verse 5. Follow with me as we, as we listen to these words. The sheep and the goats. Jesus said to his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or in sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And then at the start of chapter 26, the plot against Jesus When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and all the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, let me just tell you that I'm at the moment going through an interesting situation with my eldest daughter who is applying for university. And so we've been to five different universities over the autumn last year. And it's an interesting time, isn't it, when you begin to see this beloved child growing up to become a young adult and flying the nest, as it were, and going off to university. And it's made me think a little bit about my experience of university. I was able to study at Exeter University. It seems a long, long, long time ago now. Um, Last century, in fact. (laughs) Come to think of it, that's quite daunting, isn't it? It was last century. Um, And so it's made me think about some of the experiences I had at university and the Christian Union at Exeter University every year during one of the semesters used to put on what they called Mission Week and it was an opportunity for the Christians at the university and on the campus to um, go a bit more public about their faith in Jesus Christ and events were held for uh, people to come to listen to the gospel. Evangelistic outreach events were put on, usually involving lots of food and opportunity for conversation and discussion. Uh, But the thing that sticks in my mind the most were events that we put on occasionally called Grill a Christian. Sounds nasty, doesn't it? Grill a Christian. Um, Don't worry, they weren't barbecue events. But they were an opportunity for people to ask any question that they wanted to, no hold bars, any question that they wanted to, to a panel of Christians that would sit at the front feeling like Daniel in the lion's den. And I never got asked to be on the panel, which was a relief actually. But those that were brave enough to be on the panel, they didn't know what questions they were going to be asked. But thankfully, the events were held in such a way that Christians attended alongside those that weren't Christian believers 
And they had been primed to ask specific questions so that they didn't get stuck on one particular subject or they weren't just bombarded by the same question over and over again by a few people in the room. They were good events. They were an opportunity for Christians to articulate their personal faith and the reasons why they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would have felt grilled, very grilled, by the end of this reading today. Uh, Over at Ashdod, we're going through the days of Holy Week because I want us to be a cross-shaped church. I want us to be a cross-shaped fellowship this year in 2023. I want our focus to be on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going through the sequence of events through Holy Week. We looked at Palm Sunday two weeks ago, which felt very strange because we were still in early January. And we're going through the events day by day by day, because if you're anything like me, You can remember what happened on Palm Sunday. There was a donkey involved, wasn't there? And you can remember what happened on the Thursday of Holy Week because the disciples were in the room with Jesus and they shared a special meal. And we can remember what happened on the Friday. The Friday was crucial to the life of Jesus Christ. And we can remember the the rather special event that happened on the following Sunday. But can we remember what happened in between on the Monday or the Tuesday or the Wednesday? Or the Saturday. And so to go through the events, to chronicle the life of Christ in his last seven days on earth, I think gives us a, a very helpful insight into the reasons why he came and ministered God's grace to us all. In fact, the reading that we heard, the sheep and the goats, happened on the Tuesday. It happened on the Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus would have felt extremely tired by the end of the Tuesday. It had been a busy and very full day. Nowadays, we have devices that can measure how many steps we've taken each day. You may have one of these devices yourself. If there was ever a device to measure how many words we've spoken each day, it might be quite revealing. Some of us have a tendency to speak a lot, don't we? Others of us are maybe less inclined to speak so many words. There was a a husband and wife in the first church I was the pastor of, And um, the husband used to jokingly say that his wife was the only person he knew who could ever get a sunburnt tongue because she spoke endlessly and you could never get a word in edgeways. Maybe you've been blessed with a motor mouth. Maybe you're the kind of person that can talk and talk and talk and talk. Or maybe you are slightly towards the other end of the the scale and uh, you don't have such... uh, that inclination. Well, whichever way we look at it, Jesus was a mixture of both. Jesus knew when to speak and he knew when to remain silent. And he brilliantly exemplified Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7, which says there is a time and a season for every activity under heaven. There is a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. And on the Tuesday of Holy Week, as Jesus approached his agonizing death at Calvary, Jesus spoke a lot of words and he spoke a lot of truth. And he was teaching in the temple courts. And on that Tuesday, he was a bit of a motor mouth because he goes on talking to the people that he had, uh, he had met in the temple area. And by the end of the Tuesday, he would have been exhausted emotionally and physically. 
So what exactly did he do on that particular day? He spoke numerous parables. About two-thirds of the Tuesday consists of conflict with the temple authorities and the religious leaders. And uh, mixed in with the parables that he teaches, he speaks out against the institution of the temple and has some quite strong and harsh words to say about their religious practices. That's why the Tuesday has been described as the day of confrontation. It's a day when Jesus' authority was being questioned. He was being grilled left, right, and center, and the questions were intended to trap him and discredit his ministry. But he was able to answer brilliantly on uh, several occasions and speak to the people the words of God. I'm just going to briefly bring to your attention two specific flashpoints that took place on that Tuesday, and then one further story which relates to the parable of the sheep and the goats. So here are the two specific flashpoints, and on the screen you will see the first of these two flashpoints. They both took place in the temple in Jerusalem, and the first of these two flashpoints was the issue of paying taxes to Caesar. Some Pharisees and followers of Herod Antipas try to trap Jesus, and it's a trick with a view to arresting him. They say to him, is it lawful, therefore is it according to God's law, to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Is it right that we should pay taxes to Caesar, the emperor, or not? Should we pay them or not? And this was a question designed deliberately to trap Jesus. If he answered no, he could be charged with advocating denial of Roman authority and be guilty of treason. But if he said yes, he risked the uh, crowd discrediting himself and uh, he, he uh, would have lost the sympathy of his followers and those that were gathered in the temple if he answered no, if he answered yes. So it was a question designed to try and trip him up. But Jesus gave a brilliant reply, didn't he? And I'm sure you can remember the way in which he responded. His response was masterful because it turned the situation back on his opponents. A denarius was a silver coin equal to approximately a day's wage. And so he lifts up this, this coin, this Roman coin, the denarius, and he says, whose image and inscription is this? The coin they produced had Tiberius Caesar's image on it. He was the Roman emperor of the time. And uh, along with the standard and idolatrous Latin inscription, it heralded him as the son of the divine Augustus. Now, with no television or social media in those days, 2,000 years or so ago, these Roman coins were possibly one of very few ways in which people on the outskirts of the empire would know what the emperor actually looked like. That would be the only way in which they could see what his face was actually like. And Jesus said, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that are God. It's a brilliant reply because it neither says yes and it neither says no, but it puts the authority back to where it belongs. It gives the authority back to God. Jesus acknowledges human authority, but he says that even human authority is submissive to divine authority and that the ultimate authority belongs to God, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer, the Lord of all creation. So Jesus 
experiences this first flashpoint. The second flashpoint was probably a more familiar, heartwarming story, and it's the story of the widow's offering. In the temple, Jesus was watching people come in and go out. Um, If you're the kind of person that likes to watch people in public, and you, you just enjoy people observing, then this would be something that resonates with you well, because Jesus observed this poor widow coming into the courts of the temple, into the, in, into the temple precinct, and uh, you know the story well, I'm sure. The rich threw in large amounts, but this poor widow put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny, and Jesus used this as a teachable moment to his disciples. He says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The people in the crowds assembling for the Passover festival uh, would have been amazed if they overheard what Jesus said to his disciples at that point in the day. So it's a heartwarming story, but it's also, let's be honest, a tragic story as well. It's heartwarming because it reminds us that she gave generously, And she gave sacrificially, and she gave with pure intention and pure motives. But it's a tragic story as well, because it tells us that she was being ripped off. She was a vulnerable widow, giving money to a corrupt institution that was making money for itself. She was being cheated out of her estate when the law would normally have been designed to protect her and uh, she would have been protected by the the donations of others. But she was giving everything that she had to an institution that should be looking after her, but wasn't. And that's why it's a tragic story. So the Tuesday was the day of confrontation at that point in Jesus' life. And Jesus, according to Matthew's Gospel, withdraws withdraws with the disciples away from the temple late on the Tuesday evening after a busy day of ministry. And as he's going up the Mount of Olives, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that it's a really steep climb to go from Jerusalem, uh, the, the old part of Jerusalem, back up the Mount of Olives. It's a really steep, narrow climb. And Jesus went back up towards the village of Bethany, And uh, it's on his way back to Bethany when he tells the the story of the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats only appears in Matthew's gospel. Neither of the other gospel writers has it in their accounts of Jesus' life. And uh, this is is the main focus of the message this morning. Because Jesus tells this story in response to his disciples asking about the end of the age. And here in this story, Jesus uses apocalyptic language. Don't worry if you don't know what apocalyptic means, because basically it means an unveiling, an unveiling of the future. It uses apocalyptic language to talk about the coming again of Jesus. Jesus is using this story to zoom in on his future return. And sometimes we mistakenly call this story a parable. In fact, I always called it a parable until I looked at it this week. Uh, You'll notice that prior to the sheep and the goats story, it says the parable of the ten virgins. And then it says the parable of the talents. But then it just says the sheep and the goats. 
So I'm mistaken when I refer to this as a parable because it doesn't use the word parable in, in uh, the NIV. Maybe it does in other translations. But um, Jesus tells this story as a kind of metaphor by which he describes the end of history. Initially, this story sounds dangerously like salvation by works, doesn't it? It sounds on the face of it, on the surface of it, as if Jesus is saying, what you do gives you a right to enter his eternal kingdom. But we know that the whole thrust of the New Testament is that we are powerless to save ourselves. And it's not by works or by efforts or by achievement that we enter the kingdom of God. It's by his work. It's by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we enter into our eternal destination. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace are we saved. And I think we need to focus on verse 34. Because the, verse 34 in this story is the game changer. It's the clincher. Because it uses the word inheritance. Jesus says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Inheritance is determined by the giver. Inheritance is not earned by the receiver. There is not the slightest sense at all that somehow a person, you, I, or anybody, could get the inheritance by doing anything. An inheritance is given, and it's not earned. And so what this story is telling us is of the importance of what we do as a consequence of our salvation, not as a cause of our salvation. This story is all about the practical outworking of our faith. It's telling us that the natural outflow of our inheritance in God's eternal kingdom is that we show our faith by how we demonstrate it in a practical, applied way. It's telling us about the behavioral lifestyle that flows out of our being saved by Christ. The stark warning of this story is that one future day there will be a kind of sorting out process, like how a shepherd separates his flock. And uh, when it comes to the time in the day for the shepherd to shear the sheep, they go in a separate direction to where the, milk, uh, to where the goats go, because the goats need milking, the sheep need, need shearing, and you don't want a goat in the sheep pen because the goat needs to go somewhere else and the sheep need to go elsewhere because they're, they're on different, uh, uh, different uh, routes. And the stark warning here is that we will be judged for our response. How do we respond to the marginalized, to the vulnerable? How do we respond to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned? I think the reassuring comfort of this story is that we will be guaranteed to find ourselves on the right side of the judgment of our shepherd king. We will be commended by Jesus and welcomed into a pleasant-sounding kingdom by responding to the practical needs of the marginalized and the vulnerable. That's the reassuring comfort of this story, that when we are seen to be doing our kingdom work in this world, God's kingdom work through us, then we will have that reassurance, that blessed reassurance of eternal life. Where this story impacts me the most, I think, is when Jesus says in verse 40 and repeats with slight alteration in verse 45, 
I tell you the truth, whatever you did or did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did or did not do for me. Now, commentators discuss what Jesus really meant by brothers of mine. Sometimes commentators say, well, Jesus is only referring to his close disciples or his, his uh, group of followers when he says brothers of mine. And that's probably true. But we can make a general comment, I'm sure, by generalizing it slightly and saying that all people are the recipients of God's love. And that by narrowing down the focus to just the disciples of Jesus or his close followers, we uh, are in danger of, of uh, forgetting that uh, we are to extend the, the reach of God's love to all and not just to a close, small group of people. Now, if you're anything like me, which I'm sure some of you are, I struggle with compassion fatigue, especially when another letter arrives at home from another charity asking for more money to be given to another urgent appeal. There are so many worthy causes in society and in the world today. There is so much hurting and pain in this broken world. And our giving sometimes feels like it's just a drop in the ocean. But the good news for you to hear today is that Jesus isn't asking you to come up with a brand new cure for cancer. He's not asking you to come up with a brand new innovative program to alleviate third world poverty or to eradicate the crippling effects of drought or starvation by giving thousands and thousands of pounds unless he has specifically given you huge sums of money and laid it on your heart to do that. The good news is that in our busy lives, when we don't need another thing on top of our already busy lives to give us even more of a, of a stressful lifestyle, the good news is this. Jesus is asking you and me and us just to look at situations close by. He's not asking us to look at things on a macro scale, but on a micro scale. He's not asking us to look at things on a global scale, but on a local scale. He's asking us to look around, around the tables. He's asking us to look around the church, to look around the community. He's asking us to look around at the neighborhood and the locality and the people that we meet and greet in in places like the toy library and in the other events and community groups that we are a part of here in Adelston. Basically, Jesus is asking us to put names and faces to labels and categories. He's asking us to focus on the individual rather than on the category or the label. Who is it in your neighborhood or locality or community group that comes to mind when you hear the words hungry, when you hear the words thirsty, when you hear the words imprisoned, when you hear the word stranger. Maybe you just want to close your eyes for a few seconds and to visualize who that person is, to put a name and a face to a word or category. Perhaps it's a work colleague Perhaps it's a neighbor. Perhaps it's a friend across the road where you live. Perhaps it's even somebody 
that you are sat round the table with this morning. Whoever you think of in these moments is a beloved child of God. Whoever you think of has been made in the image of God our Creator. Whoever you think of is not just a statistic. They are made in the image of a creative God. If you closed your eyes, you can open them now. If you didn't close your eyes, then no problem. That's okay. You didn't have to. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an obligation, but just an opportunity to think about who God might be putting into your mind and your heart today. How striking it is that soon after Jesus told this story about the sheep and the goats, he became hungry. He became the hungry and the thirsty one when he died on the cross. He became the stranger when all his disciples deserted him. He became the naked one when they stripped him of his garments. He became the sick one when he was flogged. He became the imprisoned one when he was arrested and had to go through that uh, trial as he journeyed towards the cross of Calvary. Jesus must have known he was going to experience very deeply and personally the social marginalization that he had been describing to others in the story of the sheep and the goats. Now, we've probably all watched a TV program at some point in our lives or something similar in which a character behaves rather rudely towards some stranger only to realize at some point that this person was someone famous. You know the kinds of programs I'm thinking of? The waiter at a restaurant is being rather snappy with the person who seems to be having trouble deciding what to order from the menu. But then the waiter realizes that the hesitant diner in front of them is a pop star or a film star or a celebrity or a sports player. And instantly the waiter has all the patience in the world as they fawn over them and as their attitude towards them suddenly changes just like that. If you search on the internet, celebrities not getting recognized, you could pass a good half an hour with some very humorous stories. I did this the other day. Jennifer Lopez. She walks by her childhood home and finds the man living there doesn't recognize her. Why is a random woman standing in front of my house, he says. She gives him her full name. He still doesn't know who she is. What's your name again? Jennifer, she says. Jennifer Lopez. Who's Jennifer Lopez, he says. Me, she replies. Or Mike Pence walks into a barber shop and the barber thinks he's serving a regular customer. After the haircut, Mike Pence introduces himself, but his name alone doesn't sound familiar to the barber. It's only when he mentions he's running for vice president in the United States of America that the barber realizes who he is. And Pence says, and I'm not, I'm not very good at accents, but I'll try anyway, thanks for all the first. He became the governor of the state of Indiana. During the pandemic, stories were circulating of company directors inviting celebrities to their corporate Zoom meetings without their employees knowing about it. So there's one example um, of the Prime Minister of Canada suddenly appearing on screen to these Canadian employees. Or Mark Zuckerberg, somebody uh, well-known across the world, who suddenly appeared on the screen one day in front of all these startled employees of an American company. And the directors are on screen as well, and they're assessing their employees' reactions 
to who's just come into their presence to see whether they would only not just be surprised, but also whether they would change their language or change their attitude or suddenly say something um, different to how they'd appeared on screen slightly earlier. Would their, would their behavior change when they realized who they were in the company of? Apparently, it's called Zoom bombing. Zoom bombing. Well, here's the, the main point, really, today. There are no plain, ordinary people. Everyone is precious because they have been made in the likeness of God. And so when we are in the presence and serve them, whoever they are, we are serving our Creator, Lord, and King. Let me close my message today by telling you a little, about, about, a little bit about this man on the screen. His name is Martin of Tours. Um, I won't give you the whole history lesson of his life, but there's a few details there on the screen about when he lived. Why am I telling you about Martin of Tours? Well, I was wondering a few years ago about the history of the word chaplain. You know that um, many of the words that we find in the Bible that are used nowadays to describe Christian leaders are words that we find in Scripture. So, priest, minister, pastor, evangelist. These are all biblical words. But the word chaplain, where does the word chaplain come from? And so I did a bit of research a few years ago because it was uh, troubling me. It was puzzling me uh, about the historical root and source of the, the word chaplain. Because I'm sure we all know of chaplains in our community. Martin of Tours was the third bishop of Tours, which is a, a city in France. And he's become one of the patron saints of France. He was a Roman soldier in the 4th century, and he enlisted into the Roman army aged 15. And the story goes like this. One freezing winter day, an ill-clad, shivering, unknown beggar at the gate of the city of Amiens in France asked him for alms. Martin had no money in his possession that day, but seeing the man blue with cold, he ripped his soldier's cape in half and gave one half to the beggar to cover him, to comfort him, and to protect him. That night, Martin had a dream, and in the dream he saw Jesus in the courts of heaven, wearing half the cape. He heard an angel ask Jesus, Master, why are you wearing that battered old cloak? Why are you wearing that cape? Who gave it to you? And Jesus in the dream replied, My servant Martin gave it to me. My servant, Martin, gave it to me. Martin had for some time considered becoming a Christian, and this ended his wavering, and he turned to Christ in repentance and faith, and he was promptly baptized. At the end of his next military campaign, he asked to be released from the army, saying, Hitherto I have served Caesar. Let me now serve Christ. He was accused of cowardice, and he was imprisoned, but released when a peace was signed. Now, there are some aspects to the story that perhaps are legendary, but the thing I want to leave you with is this, that the Latin word for cape, the Latin word for cape, capellanus, is the word 
that we get the word chaplain from. So the word chaplain is derived from the word capellanus, which is the Latin for cape. And the title given to Martin was the title chaplain. And uh, later the title chaplain was given to other capellanus or capellas who were given the ministry of reaching out to people outside of the church, beyond the ministry of the church, which is where nowadays many chaplains do their work, beyond the four walls of the church. Many special ministries take place out in the community, in the armed forces, in the emergency services, in schools, in hospitals, in prisons, and in sports clubs. Chaplains serve in many of these community areas. And it all began with the story of Martin of Tours. Chaplaincy is being Christ's presence in the world. It's an incarnational pastoral ministry of care and compassion and a service to Christ. But let me leave you with this little uh, thought. In a sense, we are all chaplains. In a sense, we're all called to serve. We're all called to minister the grace and the love and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to whoever we encounter, to whoever we um, rub shoulders with, to whoever we see face to face or on screen. All of us are called to be ministers of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be somebody with an official title to minister the love and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to stand on a platform. You don't have to have a title in front of your name. All of us who have received the love of Christ for ourselves are called, are compelled into this ministry of God's work. So what's the common theme from these two flashpoints and from this story of the sheep and the goats? What's the common theme from these combined events on the Tuesday of Holy Week? I think the common theme is this, generous giving and sacrificial service. Generous giving and sacrificial service. Perhaps this is best summed up in one of Jesus' most memorable sayings, which he actually spoke on that very day, on that Tuesday, when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have reached out into this world and that you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his incarnation as a human being. We thank you that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that you extend your arms of love into each and every heart here this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, may you demonstrate your saving grace to all who have gathered here today. Dear Lord, forgive us for when our lives revolve around ourselves. Forgive us for the times when we become so self-centered and selfish. Forgive us for when we put ourselves first, ahead of others and ahead of you. Encourage us in our walk with you today and remind us of your everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.